G'day mates, welcome to another Guitar Wank podcast, thank you so much for taking the time and choosing this Guitar Wank podcast over all the other podcasts out there, we really appreciate it. I am your host, Troy McCubbin, you have no choice in it, and uh, we're going to get straight into the show. If you missed last week, which by, oh my god, last week's show was by far, I think, the best show we've ever done, Uh, if you missed it, make sure you go back and catch that one. The guests were amazing. Everything was just pristine. It was the best show ever. So uh, please go back and enjoy that one. If you haven't signed up uh, on the website, go to the website, guitarwank.com, subscribe, leave a review wherever you can leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah. Send us an email and you'll go in the running for the fabulous prizes that we're giving away on this amazing podcast show. Uh, This is episode 99.35. Yes, we're sticking with that bullshit until we come up with some better bullshit. So there you go. Today's show, uh, we are scot-free again because apparently Scott's a guest now. He's driving tractors. We've lost him in the farming area or something. I don't fucking know. He's been busy and uh, it's just summer, right? You get it. He'll be back. Uh, But we have an awesome guest tonight, one of my favourite guitar players and um, artist. This guy's a, a, a true artist and I think he's amazing and uh, he's a super, super cool cat. Uh, Greg V. If you don't know Greg V, please Google him um, and you'll see all the cool shit he's doing and has done. One of, the, one of these cats that picks up a guitar and every time he picks it up just sounds super musical. Licks and all that bullshit, just, he just plays music, like really good. He's a very inspiring player. Great tones. He has an album out called Tailgate Troubadour. Make sure you go check it out. It's one of my favourite albums and uh, the tones, the the playing, he does all the guitars and everything on it and it's really badass playing. Really, really badass playing. So check that out. Uh, we're going to be playing tracks from the album throughout these episodes so you guys will get a feel for it and if it's up your alley, go buy it. We support Greg. Um, he's also a bitchin' photographer like insane photographer so go to, just Google him and you'll find the first Greg V click on it and you'll find his photography his website and everything um, the guy's got mad skills so he's, he's he wears a lot of hats and he's extremely amazing at all of them so make sure you do that also make sure you uh, go to the website get a cap get a mug get a t-shirt get a pic get a coaster all that wonderful stuff we give you guys um, and make sure you sign into the competitions Bruce has got the 10 questions ready we're going to get them up on the website I'm trying to keep this short and sweet for everyone <laughs> for all those people that so there you go um, I'm trying to think of anything else we have to get across to you guys we've got the competition we've got the prizes what uh, the the, uh, the, the show that Bruce is doing, the 10 questions, and I think that's about it. So my time's just about done. If you are a company or you have a product that you would like to advertise on this amazing Guitar Wang podcast that goes throughout the world to hundreds of thousands of people, yes, I'm not pulling that number out of my ass. That's a lot of people that listen to this show, which still blows my mind. But if you have a product and you want to reach a lot of musicians and guitarists, Email us and we'll start advertising for you and we'll talk. So anyway, let's get into it and have a great week and we'll talk to you guys next week. Adios.
shoot video in it yeah, or something. Yeah, I, like know, I know, I know. I always look at how to snake it through. I've through. got this whole thing with my red guitar <laughs> thing. I've got this. I run it through my underwear. It really gets, ex <laughs> gets exciting when it's not grounded right. <laughs> nice. Now, okay. Is this okay here on this chair? Or you want to sit on the couch? Couch, oh, chair, couch, wherever you, couch? Wherever you okay. comfortable, man. this because I actually have better Okay, well, you're... I'm a, like and an there's, eye, there's a chair like that if you'd like it. Well, I'm okay like this. Oh, okay. You're cool. It's all right. Is this right. Squeaking's good. We like okay? the squeaking. It's fine, man. It's totally fine. Squeaking. We're, like in, a, we're, like, you know? we're like in a motel with the next room going. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like it. Pass through, right? Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Right. Well, you know what? Let's No time like the present. No time. Uh, Bruce Foreman, would you like to introduce the show? No. Yeah. Okay. Show. This is Guitar Wank. <laughs> guitar Wank. This is show. <laughs> there we go. And we here we are another episode of Guitar. We have a super guest today. Thank the Lord. Thank they the don't Lord. have to just listen to you and me, right? Because Thanks. Scott is once again missing. I think I think he's. Uh, I, he said he had ants and he has to let them out. <laughs> is that what he's doing? Yeah, yeah, he's busy. He's herding the ants out the door, so it's going to take a while. We'll, we'll get it's him back. Not Good. as not as bad as you know the time when you heard about the time when he, when his Sanya, Sanya his wife sent him out to get. Um, a bunch of snails because she was going to make snails for dinner and he really didn't like them but he had to go do it and really pissed him off he really pissed him off so you know he's like he goes and he buys the snails at this silly french market where they treat him like shit you know and you know how scott is he's right scott's tough so he's like it's really bad so scott gets the snails he's got him in the back he's pissed off he knows he's in a bad mood he really doesn't want to go home right then you know and so he kind of stops off at guitar center to just check out some gear you know and find some really cool shit and he's playing he looks at the watch and he's like late for dinner now and he's got the snails you know and they're sitting in the car and he finally drives home and you know she's you know he knows she's pissed so he takes the bag of snails and he just throws them on the mat the doormat and rings the bell and she answers and she's pissed off you know what I mean? <laughs> And she looks at him and she goes, this better be good. And he looks at the snails and he goes, okay, guys, come on, we're almost there. <laughs> That's a true story. Is it? Yeah. Is that a true story? Yeah. <laughs> Takes a long time to get the snails home, you know? <laughs> All right. Anyways, we don't have Scott, so thank God thank we God. have we have somebody here to save the poor guitar wankers from you and me. We have Mr. Greg V. Yay! Yeah, Yay! Yay! <laughs> yeah, you can hear the whole audience like driving their now, cars in the ditches do you go and shit. By just V, or do you go? Well, um, yeah. In a previous life as a guitar player, um, I went by Greg V, and it was. Uh, it was basically because my name is, uh, was Vorobyov. My father's from Russia. Right. And it's been slaughtered since kindergarten. You know, Greg Vostroganov, Greg, you know, <laughs> blow me off, whatever, yeah. right? Sorry, it, we'll delete that. That was good. No, no, no that, that was good. good. I, like that. But, you know, I was good. Me. I was about to get into collusion right. there, so you stopped me. <laughs> no, but, but it was just really a, a way to uh, make it simpler when I met people for them to remember my last name. Okay, so. Because it was always Greg with the weird last were, name. Are you, were you before Kenny G? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I good, think good, so. Good, yeah, this good. is probably in the... Or at least before you knew about Grindy. Yeah, you know... Um, You'll I... get a pass only if that's the truth. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to have problems. You know what? When did, I mean, I don't know. We <laughs> might have, we might have risen up at the same moment. Of but Grindy. he didn't inspire you to do this. No, no. Okay, no, then no, you're no, okay. No. It wasn't to be cool. It was not. It no, was okay. just because people... Greg, that guy with the weird last name. So I was Greg... You know, and then it's like Greg Five because there's John. Yeah, Five. yeah. And I was now wondering if, if Romans you know? do, do Romans call you Greg Five? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, well if, yeah. if anyone doesn't know who Greg V is, you just got to Google you, and you comes up with a lot of stuff. You're, dude, you're one of my favorite guitar players. Like you, oh, badass you. player, you. very tasty. And your demo videos. Were you one of the first doing that stuff? Um, you know, there were. There, I guess there were some other. There were other guys doing stuff, and right. that's sort of uh, um, that's an interesting thing. Um, early days of the internet, or I should say, early days of sort of YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was an interesting thing to go go on there and see different players, or find old archival videos of all these artists that we've loved. That you know, you you know, from the '40s or '50s or '60s or whatever, all these yep, old shows. Yep. Anyways, um, I came across some you know video demos of different uh, you know guitar players or you know whatever the stuff wasn't really elaborate and uh this is right around the time this is 2009 uh when i did my first video first demo video and i just did it for fun there was this uh company called tungsten amplifiers um they make these tweed deluxe um or i should say fender tweed sort of knockoffs and really high quality really good stuff and um i did a uh i got one of those amps from from the owner named um, adam and I loved the amp so much. I was sitting around in Nashville. I used to live in Nashville. And I was sitting around Nashville one weekend, totally bored, like, well, I want to do something. And um, I said, I'll make a video of this amp because I was, you know, I was just, let's do it. So I set up my MacBook Pro and the iSight camera, you know, and I had a Pro Tools rig, you know, nothing, nothing elaborate or anything. But I threw up a mic and could record a guitar, did this whole demo and put it, sent it, put it up on YouTube, sent the link to Adam. He put it up. And he was literally going to go out of business. He was like just within a few weeks of like, I got it. He, he, he said to me, yeah, I'm going to maybe be a, a greeter at Walmart. You know, he's in Florida. Wow. And I, I thought he was joking, but no, things were really lean and tough. And so I just did this video for fun. Long story short, he put it up. And within a week or so, he was getting orders uh, because people had discovered the video. Um, I think even Peter Frampton called up, you know, and had wow. seen it and was like, Hey, you know, this demo is great or, you know, I want to get an amp. And so uh, what that meant to me was the power of what YouTube was at that moment. I didn't quite really, I don't think, grasp it prior to that. I thought it was just a cool way to go back in time and look at cool archival footage. Right. Mm. And then I realized, wait a minute, I didn't want to go on. I was touring at the time with different artists in Nashville. I was a guitar player, which is what I've been most of my life. But um, that's where... um, that video is what started me on the path to photography and the way, you know, how that, how that really sort of... So wait a minute, you're you know. like a recovered guitar player? <laughs> yes. I'm still... There's actually somebody who has recovered? I didn't know that I, Well, I don't know if I've recovered. I don't know I'm, that that existed. There, no, I'm still shell-shocked. Okay, you know, I'm still, okay. Cause, there's cause some PTSD. I thought, PT, I, PTGD, I you just know? thought that the guitar was, was terminal, like herpes or something, you know? <laughs> we, yeah. You know, I mean, it is. <laughs> okay. I, I, it is. Least before you go down that road, I'm, yeah. I'm really curious. I've always been curious about how, how did you end up in Nashville? Was that, and what was, 
like did you start guitar because someone in the family played or was it just you picked it up and oh okay so you want you want me to go way back sure i mean pretty far back sure i mean okay um so uh i'm an army brat i grew up all over i don't really feel like i have a home i've Mm -hmm. moved around a lot as an adult but in my uh teenage years i was living in in virginia outside of Washington, D.C., in a, a town called Woodbridge, which was the Sticks back then, like 20 miles outside of uh, Washington. Danny Gatton, oh, Roy wow. Buchanan, yep. all those guys were, you know, uh, Bill Kirchin, you know, all those guys were from that, that area and a lot of other monstrous talent that, that came out of that area, um, uh, which is an interesting place to be because it's sort of where the Appalachia, Appalachian music and, 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 and country music and roots, real, you know, raw, um, you know, you know, it could be, uh, you know, Doc Watson or going back further to, you know, Osborne Brothers or whatever, the bluegrass elements. And then you get the sophistication of New York coming down. And that's an interesting sort of strata to be musically. I didn't know it at the time, but that's why guys like Danny Gatton, who had all this, you know, well, yeah, this like redneck jazz, right? Mm-hmm. Monstrous talent, monstrous skill you know, could play some of the most um, deep uh, indigenous music of America and then have the sophistication, you know, um, uh, of guys who, who you know, uh, studied and, you know, the jazz players and so yeah. forth, you know. Uh, I had none of that. That, that wasn't in my, fa- my faucet. So when I was a kid growing up there, though, um, I started playing guitar because I loved music so much. I was consumed with music, listening to music. And... At that time, we're talking in the mid, uh, I was born in 63, and 55, so I was pr- probably like 76, 77, something like that. I, um, I was just, like I said, I was consumed with music, and I realized I wanted to be a participant. I just didn't want to listen anymore. And um, I loved all sorts of types of music back then. And so when I started playing guitar, um, I thought... I, you know, I had a John Fahey record, you know, great acoustic guitar oh, yeah. player. And then I would have, a, you know, um, a, a Black Sabbath record, Deep Purple record, uh, Leonard Skinner record, Al Demiola, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Mahavishnu, you know, um, Billy Cobham. Mm-hmm. You know, I had all these sort of elements. And then I would have uh, um, bluegrass guys, you know, I, I mean, uh, Roy Clark or something like that. I mean, he's not strictly bluegrass. Blue, bluegrass guy but he was uh you know wicked great talented player and so for me um i grew up in a world where there were no genres there were no boundaries it was all about this is wicked cool this is great you know and i found it um uh, that's sort of how i am now i'm an amalgam of a player i don't have any of that sophistication or harmonic complexity that uh you know guys who have way more skill like Bruce, you know, uh, has and so forth. But um, I have the appreciation for those types of music, even though I can't, I can't play them. I don't hear those colors well, but what I do hear still to this day is the emotional content of what is being brought forth through their instruments. And the same thing can be said for classical. I love classical. I don't break it down. I don't think, well, like, oh, that snare drum. Well, I wish I didn't have an 80s gated snare drum on that you know, orchestral piece, you know, mm-hmm. I just listen to it purely from an emotional level and jazz is the same thing. And, um, so I know it was a bit of a long answer maybe to the, mm-hmm. to the question, but great. I really, uh, 
I just love all kinds of music. And as the older I've, older I've gotten, um, the more truthful, the more honest, the more um, from a deeper well that it comes from, the more Im- impression it has and leaves upon me and gives yeah, me but hope. Don't you think that's you know? kind of a, by, a, almost a byproduct of of aging, of growing older? I mean, unless you're, of course, a big star where you're just forced into delivering a product for to keep your entourage alive you know for a business i mean if it comes down to just doing music for music's sake that's i think i think the byproduct of just the years of being involved that you dig deeper into the emotional you lose the competitive you lose the uh trying to prove things you lose the need to be something and you, and you, and you, it becomes more like the desire to be some yourself than need to be something I, you know what i'm saying i think I, that that's yeah. just a natural maturation and the people that don't do that are the people that i think that are just forced into having to make the money for the big machine they're trapped yeah
And and they're trapped almost by their own their lack of evolution or their lack of uh, well, they're, but they're lack of understanding. They're not allowed to evolve because because the pressures are. I mean, imagine, I mean, yeah. just thinking about Some, guys yeah. that I know who I really love, who I think have the potential to go many ways, but kind of seem to rehash their hits. Mm -hmm. But you know, then I look at them and and they are very wealthy themselves. Mm -hmm. But I also see how many people's livelihoods depend on them. And they're good people. And so like your producer or your manager says, you you know, you say, hey, I've decided I want to do this now. I want to do a tribute to Ornette Coleman or something. You know, it's (laughs) like, wait a minute here. You know, you have these 50 people we need to keep making money or right. these people will not have a job right now. along with the fact that you may also stop making money and you may be more leveraged than you think you are right. you know mm-hmm. because i've been ripping you off this one but anyways <laughs> um that's true but i think i think that that becomes the, the the along with just people who aren't who don't care and get tired mm-hmm. or whatever apathetic but um you know what I mean? There's like the, 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 there's almost a hindrance to evolution with success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're trying to recreate your success rather than mm-hmm. move beyond and find the next success. Right. There's a lot of fear in that, right? For a lot of those. Guys. I mean, I I mean it's a lot of fear based on I mean, so I'm many this, things. I'm only yeah. going to say this once in my life, so I'm going to say it now. It's like I'm glad I never got famous. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time I'm ever going to say that, right. folks. You heard it here because I can. I mean, I've I've basically been afforded the opportunity to do whatever I want. Yeah, that's, that's whatever I believed in. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and I'm thinking about so many of my peers who are doing much better than me, mm-hmm. who I hang out with. Mm-hmm. And I see them as a bit of a prisoner of their success, not necessarily enjoying it as much as I thought I would if I'd right. had it. Well, it's such an individual journey, isn't it? You know, yeah. how, how if you had had maybe some of the success that you speak of some of your peers have had, you would have responded differently to perhaps. This, yeah, well, being being a yeah. we're all made of jelly and water. Uh-huh. We're all different, you know, different yeah. variations of that yeah. ratio, right? Yeah. So, in other words, uh, you know, um, how you respond and how you're driven by your art um, or your muse, I should say. Some are driven by, you know, success, whatever that might be. Like, I'm going to make a ton of bread, or I'm going to be driven by, um, uh, I just want to get laid more, you know. Um, I want attention, adulation, you know. Um, and other people are driven, maybe just with an inward journey of just trying to push themselves deeper and deeper within their well and see how far they can go. And those are the ones that, uh, you know, a lot of times never deviate from that path. Because right. that's, a, a, that's a lonely journey. That's an inward journey that requires a tremendous amount of isolation. Um, even if you're surrounded by people, you're just sort of off in the corner like, you know, drooling in your mouth, outside your mouth because you're so lost in some sort of... Uh, uh, other endeavor and thank God for those people because the people who do that those artists that go that deep are the ones that you know tear the universe into a, a to another plane that we can as viewers and listeners can look into right you know a lot of the others are just sort of uh you know going through the motion and they might be they might be talented you know I mean uh, in terms of technical aspect or you know decent writers in terms of a composer and and so forth but this, you know, a lot of their 
art, if you will, maybe lowercase a, not uppercase art. And it might also be, um, you know, be a little hollow, you know, in some aspects. I mean, I'm, these are very big brushstrokes I'm painting here. Right, everything's you know? so nuanced with every person. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, everybody, I'm sure, recognizes all those things in themselves that yeah. you just You know, I never, I never wanted fame. I never did. When we go, you know, going back to being in Virginia, all I, all I ever wanted to do was be in one band as a guitar player and be a contributing member to the fabric of that sound of that band for the rest of my life. Make a record, go on tour, um, come back, record a record, go on tour and just rinse and repeat for 30, 40 years. That was my goal in life. It didn't happen. I never found that one artist. And so my backup plan was, well, I, I need to keep working. I'm sorry, I, need, I got bills to pay to keep working. I've got to join one circus. When that circus died, I'd have to, you know, you start realizing, wait, uh, you know, uh, the, the lion's rib cage is showing, you know, and I'm a circus clown. I, I've got to get out of that circus, just climb across the sand dunes and get across to another circus. And that lasts for six months or a year. And then that story of my life. Was it, how long were you in Virginia for? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, uh, my parents, I'm uh, the youngest of four children. Mm -hmm. And so my, my parents are much older. So my dad and mom wanted to retire, my dad especially. Um, so they moved down to Florida, to the Florida Panhandle, um, in a very small town. Um, the Redneck Riviera. Redneck Riviera. And, and, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Mm -hmm. That is, I was down in Pensacola, and that's what the guys there all called it. That's it. I that, didn't make yeah. that up. So. No, it's okay. true. No, it's true. And it's not far from Pensacola, actually. There were, I was in a, there's a, a town just east of Pensacola called Fort Walton Beach. And this is uh, where I grew up. Sorry, when my parents moved down, they bought a farm. They bought a 40-acre farm with three fish ponds that had catfish in it and all that. And um, it was amazing. It was incredible because uh, I went down to, you know, uh, I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to leave high school. I wanted to drop out of high school. My parents would have none of that. And uh, I just wanted to play so badly. I was playing, the first day I played guitar was six hours. Sorry, eight hours. Next day was six because my fingers hurt so bad from the day before. And then from then on for a year, like all of us here, right, and all of you, probably your listeners, I put six, eight, ten hours a day in literally every day for the first four to five years. And after that, it was three to four hours or more and only less because I started working and you know, having life and things and bills to pay for. Um, and so I was consumed with guitar. And I told my mom and dad, I said, I want to, you know, I want to uh, quit school. And they said, no, you got to get a diploma. If you want to go to college, we'll send you to college. But um, if you don't, that's okay. You could, you know, you just, you, you got to at least give us a diploma. So in Florida, I started playing in a band at 15, playing all these clubs along the Redneck Riviera from Panama City, which is east of where I was, and all the way over to, to Pensacola. With a lot of military bases there and biker bars. And I played in place, literally a guy got stabbed in front of me. You know, it was like Altamont or something. And I'm 15 years old. Not even supposed to be in these clubs. But this is the 70s. And that era and that location, could do that you could get away with it. I it was like playing too. juke joints in the 30s or 40s and literally the modern in 70s version of that. You right. know? Yeah. No police force or anything like that. And as long as the club owner was making money, they didn't care who, how old you were on stage. Right. right? And I was always playing with guys who were 20, you know, 25 years old. 10 years older than me, and they take me under their wing and protect me. But I was making money. I was making 50, 75, 100 bucks a night then, which is what, ironically, you're lucky if you can get that now sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. and, th and even with inflation, 
You know, not, you, you right. know it's like it was worth, it was make, making 300 a night now or something, you know, or more maybe, you know. And um, so I wanted to, I wanted to, um, I wanted to just play guitar. But uh, uh, as soon as I graduated high school, I was playing the last few years, like I said, of, of my, my time there. And my, my parents were big on getting education, especially my dad, but I kept my grades up. And because the schools were so far behind, back, they were behind there from the Virginia. So it was like remedial. The last two years of high school there was three years of high school. It was like I'd already learned it in seventh and eighth grade in Virginia. It was what I'm getting at is this. I came home Friday night, 18, graduated, handed my mom the diploma, went in the back and lo- loaded the car up, and I moved to California the next day. <laughs> I was so, and I said, okay, I've, this is the diploma you've demanded of me. And... Um, she started crying, and I left the next morning to start my dream, you know. Wow. And but uh, a big part of that, sorry to be so long-winded on this, but a big part of that was because I was already playing and making my living as a musician. I just felt like this is easy. I can just play guitar anywhere. But I had to go. I knew I had to go somewhere bigger, and so I moved to San Francisco. Then, um, where, where, what year? Nineteen eighty-one. I graduated in 81 in June and ended up there just a, like a week or two later. Wow. Drove cross country. And, uh, um, and I loved it. I mean, it was like, my God, I felt like I'd gone to Manhattan, you know, right. for, compared to 600. I graduated with 24 people. Then. I mean, wow. I, that's where I lived. What, what's that? That's where I lived. Oh, that's really? Where that's where I'm from. Oh, yeah. oh, that's okay. Wow. So you were. So I was there then. Wow. I had, I'd spent like 78 and 9 in New York. Right. Went to high school in San Francisco, uh-huh. played there professionally. Then I, much like you, wanted to go to a bigger place. So I right. went to New York. Wow. Yeah. It did 78, 79. The only reason I kind of ended up back in San Francisco was because the two bands I was, or circuses as you like right. to say, <laughs> uh, I was on tour with were both based on the West Coast. And, and I'm, I had such a great network and family mm-hmm. and a woman there who I actually eventually married. Um, I just sort of ended up letting go of my apartment in New York because I was on the road all the time anyways. Mm-hmm. And so you're off the road for two weeks. Well, you're in New York, you're in L.A., or I mean San Francisco. What's the difference? Because I really wasn't part of any local scene anymore at that point. I was mm-hmm. in the circus, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, but I, I got a question for you. The circuses you mentioned, one to another, can you just give us an idea of what those were? And, I mean, of course, we're using the word circus, and we're not disparaging, but... The, the groups you joined that, that you did the road work and you played with, can you name some of them? Yeah. Um, well, it's probably, uh, you know, that I think every, every band, if you're in it long enough, um, the, it's like magic curtains get pulled back and you realize the magic tricks, you know, the, yeah. the rabbits are running amok, yeah. you know. The, you know, the audience sees the 90-minute or two-minute show of a, of, of a given project, a given artist, and they think, oh, my God, so glamorous. Oh, my God, how's it, what's it like to be with her every night? Yeah. Oh, my God, what's, how can you, oh, my God, you know, that kind of thing. And then you're just gone. You have no idea what we just witnessed at Soundcheck or, <laughs> right. you know, or what have you, That's you know. So, so there, like I said, there's always, because, again, we're human, so... You know, and the but, roads and the roads tough. I know, I know. All yeah, that, no, no, I, I know, no. I just want to know who they were. Just well, kind of yeah. Well, I guess I was just in, and well, I do know because I've I've done some research. But I'd like you to tell our guys who are driving. I don't want them. Like, okay. I well, don't want f- them googling you right now. Right. I want you to tell <laughs> why <them>. they're driving. <laughs> well, Google so Greg V. Yeah. The, the um, okay. So my my first good gig, uh, real tour, 
sort of local touring in the Bay Area was uh-huh. with a, a girl named Bonnie Hayes. Oh yeah, um, in a wild combo. Bonnie, um, sure. So you do you remember being a Bay Area guy? Bonnie, you would sure. probably yeah. know Bonnie. Yeah, yeah. and she's. Uh, Extremely talented, very monstrously talented. Yeah, and um, I I just played with her for a um, pretty short stint. I don't know six eight months or something, maybe less than a year. She had a falling out with her boyfriend, a guy named Paul Davis, who was a great guitar player, and they had a falling out. And um, Chris Hayes, her brother, Chris, her brother, yeah, he's great. He, from um, Huey, Lew- he was he a guitar player. Huey, Huey Lewis, Lewis in the oh, news, wow, right? Okay. And he uh, he was a judge in a contest called the Guitar. Grudge match contest that this guy Mike Varney, yeah, I don't. Mike he was Varney, like yeah. he had a, a record label called Shrapnel, um, which was like where a lot of shredder guys like Ingve yeah. and Paul Gilbert and Racer yeah. X and a lot of these guys came from. Anyways, um, so I was in this guitar contest that Mike put on, and uh, fortunately, um, first year I, I I like came in third, which is a weird thing because I never looked at music competitively, but it was a way to get seen and heard. Yeah. So it was a weird thing, but I came in third. Next year they did it again, and I and I won. And um, Chris was one of the judges then, you know, and he and it was like he lo- he really liked my playing, and he recommended me to Bonnie, who just had a breakup with her boyfriend. Oh, and God. and this is how this is how it's so weird that people always go, "What was your first break?" Well, that was sort of a, a, a small break, but a, in, in a large scheme of artists around the world. But in this, in the, uh, if you strip it down to just the Bay Area, it was a massive break because Bonnie was super highly regarded. And everywhere we played were 1,000, 1,500 people showed up. And I went from nothing to being Bonnie Hayes' guitar player and immediately got attention. And people would ask, you know, they'd see me play and maybe ask me to do a session or something like that, which I never aspired to do sessions, if you will. Yep. But if somebody liked me and I could make some extra bread and I had, you know, available time, why not? Right. I get to play my guitar and get paid. I'm in, you know. Yeah. So leading to your question, Bruce, um, after that, I mean, it, this is there's a lot of connective tissue here. We're cutting away. But um, I started playing with um, Ronnie Montrose who's a great, uh, he, was, he had a band called Montrose in the 70s. Yeah. Sammy Hager was the sure. singer. He was a, a, a great rock player. He's, he's gone now, sadly. Um, I toured with him, which then it led into many years with a drummer for Jimi Hendrix, um, Band of Gypsies, Buddy Miles. Oh, okay. And I like to tell people I didn't play with Buddy, I survived Buddy Miles. Yeah. You know? Hold on, how do you get the gig with Buddy Miles? And was that... That's obviously, what year are we talking now? Yeah, that, uh, my first gig with Buddy was probably 1988. Bonnie was probably mid-80s, 85-ish. Okay. And then Rontrose was around 87 or 88. Yeah. That was an interesting tour, by the way. We played with Alan Holdsworth for three months. Oh, wow. And I got to be friends with Alan really? from that tour. That's yeah. I could tell you some funny stories from that. But... Um, which we will make you do later. Oh, yeah. Well, well, I'll just I'll just kind of wrap it up. So all these gigs, I'm I'm sort of a uh, chronological guy. So that led to um, Buddy, led to I don't know different. Uh, oh, I started doing TV show work. Um, Max Headroom was the first TV show I did. Oh wow! That guy, yeah. Matt, 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 yep. Matt, Matt, you know, sort of a animated futuristic yeah, sure. guy. Yeah, oh yeah, that yeah. was yeah. And it was a really that. cool show, actually, a very ahead of its time, very dystopian and very yep. dark, and very much like the internet and sort of foretelling of technology and how it's going to corrupt uh, society and civilization. It was only on for one year, but it was with a guy named Corey Lirios, who was the uh, keyboard player in um, Pablo Cruz, which was sort of a, a band in the '70s that had some. Some pretty pretty good size hits, and Corey, I don't remember. Oh, well, 
I don't know how deep to go into this, but uh, Corey eventually got Baywatch and he brought me into Baywatch. Wow. And I did like four years of Baywatch. And um, So how did recording for all the episodes? Correct. I wasn't the composer. Right. Because uh, Corey's a keyboard player. Yep. But Baywatch being a, being a beach thing in LA, they wanted guitar. They wanted yeah. rock guitar. Cause so it goes, do you, were you on the the theme and all that or no actually uh i think they actually had a couple different themes over the course of that show yeah. that was uh i think Corey might have been involved i actually don't know if he wrote the main theme or if they did it with a a group of different people right. but no he, he did i didn't play the theme but every <clears throat> week we would there would be you know new music every every yeah. epi- every episode and um it was like an hour show i think so i think he had about 20 22 minutes of music or something like that yeah. and it was stressful for him it was stressful for me because I'd always come in on the last day before he had to deliver everything. Oh, wow. And that was like, hurry up and, you know, play this guitar shit, right? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but it was awesome because that really led me almost to, you know, you know I, I look back on it now, to photography and the connection of music to visuals mm-hmm. um, and how that was very important to even when I made my record later on and uh, how I realized how I composed was seeing pictures and so forth, you know? But... Um, so all this, you know, sort of led a haphazard sort of path that a sideman tends to live again, as I mentioned, the circus, you know, you know, you, you don't know where you might end up. You, you go to a gig and you meet a bass player on the gig and then he's all of a sudden got something cool going on six months later and remembers that you and him were cool on the bus and, br- you know, oh, no. brings yeah, you, you know, brings you into stuff, you know, so, you know, you're either networking or not working. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> Perfectly said. Exactly. <laughs> And, and, but I mean, like when you play with Buddy, did, what kind of music was it? Was he playing? Buddy's thing was. Uh, was it like Band of Gypsies still? Or no, was, no. I mean, Buddy was. Uh, I mean, we did some Hendrix. Yeah. But it was more about. I mean, it was the Buddy show. It wasn't Buddy just basking in the glow of Hendrix. You know, um, Buddy would do his. We, you know, we do his work. You know. Um, them changes, of course, down by the river, changes, right, right yeah. you know, and uh, some newer stuff he did. Um, I can't remember any of the song. This is so long ago. And then we would do, you know, various covers and things like this, that, but we would do our own interpretation. Buddy would never be, the cool thing about Buddy, and this is one of the great things that still leads, leads me in the path of music these days, he brought you in the band because he liked what you brought to his sound. It wasn't like, well, we just fired this guitar player. Here's do some live part. tapes. Do his part. Exactly. Yeah. It was never like that. It was like, do you, you're here. We obviously think you're valid because you're, you're on the bus. Now, you know, bring us something. Do your thing. Yeah, do your thing. Well, and Buddy's, Buddy's gig was, when I first got the gig, they gave me a bunch of live tapes and I had to learn, you know, like 40 some odd songs on the, dr- fly, I mean, on the drive out to the first gig. There was no rehearsals, but it wasn't like that. Soundcheck was like longer than the, the gigs because Buddy, unless you had food around, Buddy would not want to get out from behind the drums. He was a big guy. Yeah. And, you know, we've got, man, we used to, he used to steal our food on the bus as a band. You know, you stop in to a grocery store and you get, your, you know, a little bit of money from the show from before. And um, you, you, you know, put all the food out on the table in the berth of the bus. You come out next morning like, hey, who ate my donuts? <laughs> and you look on the floor and you see all the crumbs going back to the big berth where Buddy was. And he'd come out at like four or five in the morning and eat, because, you know, he eats all the food. And the, the, the funny thing was, we all had to pull our money together. We decided, well, Buddy's eating all our good food. Let's put out decoy food for Buddy. <laughs> so we would all like put in five bucks, get 20 bucks, go to the grocery store and wherever we were in a town and go to like the day old food section, you know, where the stuff's like half price 
and we would all buy the decoy food and put it out, and we'd hide all our good food in our bunk. You'd stuff it around the line, you know, on the, the matches of your bunk, so Buddy would never dig in there. <laughs> but but then he'd eat all the crappy food, and you saved your good food, you know. <laughs> but I got a million. I mean, Buddy, crazy stories with Buddy.
And you know, I'm young and it's like, this is Buddy Miles, you right, know? Right, man, you're playing every night. Oh you're my God, money, I had his man. records when I, that's what I was talking about in Virginia. Like yeah. these, okay, let me just say this. As far, okay, I've, I've, I've never played with anybody um, and for your listeners, my hand is like going on an upward slope. Yeah. <laughs> I never play with anybody as their, as their career is going up. Never at the pinnacle. I've always been on the backside, almost like the mortgage tour or the, you know, the, you know, just trying to pay for three divorces tour, you know. And it's interesting because I still feel like I hit the lottery as a, as a musician. I played with people like Ronnie had those mantras when I was a kid. Band of Gypsies, of course, I had. Um, you know, people that I never, ever expected to play with, you know. Um, and if my Weren't hands you in felt... double trouble at one point? Yes, that's right. Yeah, after... Yeah. Uh, that's got to be the hardest gig in the world, it right? Was, it was stressful. It was very stressful, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm curious. I've got to ask this question. I'm sure you get this question all the fucking time. But did Buddy have the Hendrix stories? Oh, my God. Did he talk about Hendrix much? Yeah, he did. But the thing with Buddy... I think that there was some delusional, you know, mind uh, trips going on with him. It was still like 1968 in some ways in his brain, maybe. And what I mean by that is you never really knew what was truth, what was fiction. Right. And, uh, and I'll give a perfect example of this. Buddy used to keep a few white Fender Stratocasters in cases down on the, in the berth of the bus, which is the, where you put all your gear and stuff, you know. And... Um, Anytime, Buddy would always attract these really weird people to gigs, like a old, like old uh, biker guys, and who were I mean, who were just deep in that world, Hell's Angels, mm-hmm. just that world. When I say weird, I mean just people who are in this. Man, you don't know if you want to stay on the bus with them later or whatever. You know, crazy stories we had, and Buddy uh, on occasion would get these businessmen who were wealthy and would come to see Buddy Miles because of his Hendrix, you know, uh, lineage. And he would con them and tell them, he'd pull out one of those white strats and tell them, this is the, this is the one Jimmy played at Woodstock. I've been keeping it all these years. You know? oh, and, and he would sell it. No. I kid you not. And he would sell the guy, five, 8,000, whatever he could get out of these guys. And he would hustle selling those. He's, I sold him. He sold that Woodstock Strat many times over. And it was oh my cr- God. It was crazy. And they all looked used up, right? No, were- no. They were like shiny. And then the buddy, this was pre-relicking and all that. And he would just say, it's been pristine. Jimmy only played it at Woodstock. It's so pristine. You know, you know, you should have this, you know. And like, oh, yeah, thank you, Mr. Miles. I, thought I would really like to get this. Uh, hang on. Let me go, you know, let me go to my hedge fund, you know, and pull up, you know, a bunch of bread. And, well, I got to say, man. Crazy. He's a buddy. buddy. I got, I, folks, I got to tell you, I got, I got, no. Buddy, I got nothing. Buddy rented a Mercedes and sold it. And just to get, and, and they split town. Buddy was like, he was just, he would just, he would burn, he wouldn't blow bridges up. He would nuke the continents of the bridges. And then he, we, so we were always like, is somebody going to show up with Uzi? So that was the joke in the band, you right. know, that is, you know, who are these guys coming around where we're laying by, by the, at the Motel 6, you know, <laughs> before the gig or something, are we going to end up dead, you know? I mean, I got crazy Buddy Miles, so crazy stories about that guy. And hilarious now, but at the moment, we're like, oh, you know, okay, I got to tell this one. Can I tell one? Can yeah, I tell yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, Keep please. going. Oh my God. This is yeah, great. I love the story. Okay, so... We were, we were playing in Chicago and outside of Wrigley Field. 
And we were playing at a small motel, family-owned motel called uh, the Heart of Chicago. I don't know why it sticks with me, but it does. It's one of those two levels, you know, just, just a simple, simple, you know, cheap motel. And Buddy's like, Jim, I'm checked in into the Heart of Chicago. All right, I'm going to be zipping out of town here, but, you know, I'll come back by in a week or two and I'll pick you all up. All right, so the bus stays. We stay, trailer behind the bus stays. And like about, a, you know, a few days into our, into our stay there, we go down into the lobby and it's this uh, um, older couple that own the place. And they're like, um, gentlemen, uh, you know, we, we just, uh, we've been trying to run uh, Mr. Miles' credit card and it keeps getting denied. And we can't, the phone number he left us, is, you know, it's no longer in service. Could, do you have any way to get in touch with buddies, Mr. Miles, you know, so we can, you know, settle up on the bill and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, no, 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 we, we don't know. We didn't have a tour manager. The tour managers we ever had last about a week on the road with Buddy, and then he'd bounce them. So then it was like Buddy and us, and it was crazy. And so finally, one of the guys got in touch with Buddy, got a number, and said, Buddy, you got to call. They're going to bounce us out of this motel. You got to pay the bill. He's like, yeah, Jim, no problem. I'll call him down there. I'll tell him I'll call him in 15 minutes. So we get down there. 30 minutes later, phone rings down in the lobby. And it's a sweet old lady, you know, you know, the owner of the heart of Chicago. And um, she puts them on speakerphone. It's like, okay, okay, I got a new credit card. This is going to be good now. And she goes, okay, Mr. Mo, thank you. I'm, I'm ready to go. And she's probably like 70 years old or something, you know. And she, he goes like, well, it's 4732L. M W Z Y zero four three Z Z Z, and we're like Visa cards don't have any letters in them. It's all numbers. We're looking at each other, and we're like, uh, okay, this is okay. Buddy's pulling pulling a fast one. She writes it all down, and then of course she didn't know, so she thinks it's legit and hangs up the phone, and of course realizes very shortly that it's it's not a real Visa card. Yeah, and they block the bus in. They don't let us leave. They say we owe thousands of dollars for multiple rooms, you know, in this, in this motel. And we got to know this old couple who felt sorry for us because Buddy had abandoned us as well. We could, incommunicado, couldn't get in touch with them. And eventually got to the point where we're like, look, we don't want when Buddy's going to come back and pick us up. We don't, it could be a month. He may never come. He might be in prison. We, you don't, we could have died. We don't know. So we talked them, we talked to the couple and they felt so sorry for us that they, um, they let us go. And the irony is, we, you know, prior to that, we had to pay him something. So we gave him Buddy's drum set. We, gave, we unloaded his drums from the bus and said, this is Buddy Miles' Band of Gypsies drum set. Set it up in the lobby to show him it's a full drum set. And they drove us to the airport, let the bus go. Right. And because the bus was not ours, we leased the bus. So, you know, at the point the best driver, I got to go, you know. So. So anyway, let us, you took your equipment with you, took our equipment with us. Go to the we go to the sorry, we go to the airport. And um, two weeks later, I'm here back in L.A. And it's, uh, you know, V phone rings. V it's Buddy Miles. Come on. We're hitting the road again. We're getting all back on the road. Come on. You know, I said, well, where are you? Well, I'm at the heart of Chicago where you was were staying. I'm like. <laughs> What? And this is the this is this is the crazy thing about Buddy. He could do that to someone, and then he would completely 180 with someone, and they took him in and let Buddy Miles stay at their motel <laughs> after all that jive 
and After hustle. Burn them for all that. Because did you guys pay for your rooms? No, you no, no, no. We didn't. No, they got the drum set, and I guess Buddy got the drum. Ultimately, he had a manager uh, here in L.A. who's passed away now, Roger Fit, Roger uh, Fitzpatrick, who probably bailed Buddy out, which is what he did. He was a very famous manager back in the day, and he was, you know, um, he took care of any cleanup messes, you know, <laughs> like you know that 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 he needed to for Buddy, and so settled them up. And that's where they probably paid in advance and he got a room there. But Buddy was like that. He would, you know, um, it, it was... Uh, it so was every con- time you checked in, you were thinking, like, I got to go home. Every moment on the bus with Buddy was, was just like high wire, high voltage, like, zzz, like yeah. what's going to happen? Because with Buddy, it was just constant um, chaos, constant um, just vortex of chaos, you know? And um, I remember when I first joined the band, all the other guys had uh, these, these tour jackets that had the Buddy Miles Express, which was the name of the band that Buddy had back you know, in the late, late uh, early 70s. Um, and it had this cool train embroidery, and, and they were all like, yeah, well, you know, Greg, you stick around long enough, you too can get one of these Buddy Miles Express jackets, you know? And I was like, that's awesome. I, I really wanted one, you know? And then I looked closely at them, and I realized they didn't have their names embroidered on the jacket, they just had patches, like Velcroed patches with their name on them. And I was like, hey, what's, what's, they're like, well, yeah, you could bounce out of band. You don't get to keep the jacket. You got, you just get a new name patch, you know? And they would keep the jacket. It was like, do you have to have a cleaning deposit, you know, on the jacket when you return it? You know? And so the joke was on the band, if you did a lot of clams that night, you know, the band was really good. We had different players, but it was a good, really good band. And um, if you did clams, you'd, you'd, on the bus, you'd, rip the guy's name badge off or something like that. You're no longer, you're out of the express, you know? And so that was, that was the joke on that. So where did, where did you go from Buddy? Yeah, what did, where did I go from Buddy? Um, okay, I started playing with this French artist, uh, um, a guy named David Halliday, who was uh, the son of Johnny Halliday. Johnny Halliday was a very famous, he was like the Elvis of France. He just passed away, I think, last oh. year or earlier <clears throat> this year, maybe. And um, that was a weird period for me. Um, that was probably uh, one of the most jive gigs I've ever had. And what I mean by that, that was purely a money grab. You know, I was on retainer. I did it for several years. And I played with a guy who was, who, you know, he could sing, like technically he could hit the notes and all that. But we'd come to rehearsals and he would be wearing, why, why you got these big eyeglasses, a sunglasses on? And we realized he had just been watching like Bono and The Fly, big, you know, oh, right. he was like who, Chris Cornell. He'd try to sing like Chris Cornell the next week or something. It was like, there was no identity. Right. There was no, there was no um, substance, but it was purely like, I'm on retainer. I was surfing half the year in LA and then I was in France and Europe the other half of the year. Right. And it was awesome. Uh, but looking back on it now, it was a time waste. Um, it was an art waste. It was, uh, I took the gig because I, I just wanted um, Well, it's sort of like comfort. Considering after <laughs> Buddy Miles, it's sort of like, you know, <laughs> you know. I got a nice girl. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't talk much. Matter of fact, she might be dead. But she's a nice girl. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Well, it was it was a weird time. It was a weird time for me. I've been sort of. I mean, I did lots of other things in the meantime. I mean, we're skipping over a lot of stuff. But these are like the the I guess the bullet points, if you will, right, yeah. of key moments in 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 my little world of guitar, and um, how and then. Uh, 
I got so burned out on that band, that Halliday guy, you know, even though it was great because I got to see the world and I got to eat great food. There were a lot of good perks, but music was not one of them. Mm. Um, and then after a while, that band imploded after a few years. And then I was like, I, I got sick of the business. I mean, I've always, I never really cared about music business. I always cared about music deeply, but not the, the business was like, like Grammys. I never cared about Grammys. I never wanted to win a Grammy. I wanted to be on Austin Scene Limits, but I never got on Austin Scene Limits, you know? I was more, because that show was about artists and songwriters, back in the 70s especially. And um, so for me, those were, the, those were the goals I'd set for myself. Um, but when that French uh, artist thing fell apart, uh, my wife had an opportunity to move to Hawaii. And I said, man, I need a sabbatical. I need to I need to get out of LA, you know, and um, so that's so I moved to Hawaii, and I thought I was going to sell T-shirts to tourists, <laughs> you know, and guitar was just going to you know play an ukulele, you know, on the beach or something, and I ended up getting a, a, within a week I got I got another fortunate set of circumstances, got in a, one of the best bands in Hawaii, playing five nights a week, making really good bread. We played covers mostly, but we did our own interpretation. So there was a lot of uh, improvisational, and you mm -hmm. could bring your identity. Because yeah. I could never survive in a cover band. It would be even worse than that French artist. Um, but it would. Uh, but because I could be expressive, and I learned a lot. I played with a monstrous B3 player there. Monstrous. And um, nothing's good. more terrifying as a guitar player for me than to take a solo after a monstrous B3 player has just taken a solo. Because with a Leslie 122, you know, roaring, and I mean, you've got, the, you've got the church, you've literally got the church of life in front of you with a B3 through a roaring 122. And those guys who can play it, know how to work it, throw the one hand up in the air, you know. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was like you had to really step up after that, this guy named Steve Utstein, who's a Bay, he's in the Bay Area now, actually, mm -hmm. um, and a great player. And uh, wow. so that, that happened. And I, really, I got sort of, I, I, this is a cliche, but island fever. And that's where you asked me about how did I end up to Austin, mm -hmm. which is double trouble. So I said to my wife, okay, can we move back to the mainland? But let's move someplace we can afford a home maybe and someplace that's a music town. And there's only a few of those at that time. It was Nashville, Austin, New York, or, you know, well, New York's too expensive, but really it was Nashville and Austin. I didn't want to go to Nashville. So uh, we moved to Austin. I yep. didn't know anybody. And I just started, you know, within three months, I, uh, I got to get with Double Trouble. How did, how long, what year is this? How long after Stevie Ray had gone? Oh, uh, when did Stevie Ray die? Actually, 90. 91? 90, I was going to say early 90s. 90, okay. This was uh, quite some time. This is 2000. Okay. Yeah. So what it was, was Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon, the rhythm section, Double Trouble for Stevie Ray, um, sort of came out of hibernation on their own you know they had been doing different things maybe with like Kenny Wayne Shepherd, I think yeah. at the time but they put out a record called Been a Long Time it was basically a duo of them and with guest guitar players Doyle Bramhall too mm -hmm. um, Charlie Sexton produced it I think uh, well, Kenny Wayne was on there um, a, a whole variety of players Susan Tedeschi you know sang, sang on some tracks and Alfred Milligan and it's sort of a, a, a Marsha Ball Jimmy Vaughn so it was sort of all their illumin illuminante, I guess is the word, of, of, of Austin and beyond, of their worlds. They, they brought them all to sort of bring this beautiful record for them. And um, then they needed to put a band around it, you know, because the record sort of took off in their world. They didn't expect it. And it was great timing that I was a new guy in Austin. Um, they had heard me. I had actually done some show, a few extra shows with Buddy Miles, and, and um, they had heard me with Buddy. 
and Malford Milligan, who's this great uh, black albino singer um, who was with uh, Chris and Tommy in a band called Storyville earlier, earlier in the career, heard me and th- th- recommended me and say, hey, this new guy he doesn't sound like an Austin guitar player, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, they, Chris Layton called me and um, I thought it was a joke at first because, you know, you don't expect that. And I was scared to death in Austin, too. Because it's such a, you know, it's, I had such reverence for the musicians there, past and current. You know, um, Gary Clark Jr. was yeah. playing on the 60s, like 16 years old. And I yeah. used to see him playing straight blues, I mean straight up, and crushing it. And I'm like the world's fucking worst blues guitar player. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I recognize it when I hear it, like great playing. But I also recognize early on, um, it was not, I, ca- I come from blues via rock. You know, not from blues, you know. I'm a traditional nothing. I'm a mutt. I'm an amalgam of all that stuff I mentioned in Virginia. And because I thought you had to be a well-rounded player, you know. I tried a little bit of flamenco and a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And um, so my blues playing was was not great. And actually, that benefited me getting that Double Trouble gig because they didn't want a Stevie Ray sound alike. The music that they put out on that record was nothing like that. They needed a diverse, eclectic... uh, player who could who could um, capture a range of sounds you know that these other players had brought to the song and that was uh, a great opportunity for me to be able to uh, put you know I was scared initially but once I settled into I realized wait this is perfect for me you know it wasn't it wasn't um, I mean it was terrifying to stand next to Tommy Shannon and go he was at Woodstock with Johnny Winter you know he's not in the original movie but Johnny Winter played there I'm like you know all that all that and uh you know, so once you got over that, it was like, yeah, but they brought me here and for a reason. You know, they, they, they respected me and treated me as a peer. And that gave me more confidence and made me feel like maybe, maybe I am supposed to be here. You know? Wow. How long did you guys play together? That tour was about seven months yeah. uh, in and out of Austin. And then um, my wife got an ultimatum. I was in Austin 10 months. First three months just playing on 6th Street, hustling, and then seven months with them. And then my wife got an ultimatum with her job to either move to Dallas to relocate with her company or move back to L.A. She didn't, neither one of us wanted to go to Dallas. And so we bailed on Austin and moved back to Los Angeles, you know. And that's, um, uh, you know, that, well, that was sort of at that point, like it was more important. Uh, I didn't really know what I could do in Austin, um, Beyond that, but you know, join up with again more more projects or something. But it would have been haphazard. Music business was really starting to be in a bit of disarray because of the internet and mm-hmm. um, budgets and things like that. This you is know, when uh, two thousand. You know, the internet. I mean, I first got on the internet like ninety four, ninety five, or something. But things, you know, Napster and things were starting to take hold, and it seemed as though um, bands didn't really want to pay much anymore you know I mean they, I mean they, they you know double trouble was fine you know they paid well but um, it was just uh, I started I guess I just started feeling yeah things are you know the, the the window was closing slowly you know in terms of uh, you know I didn't I didn't want to try to join up with any big pop act or anything like that you know I wasn't cut out for that sort of scene you know and um, I just I just wanted to play really good music with really good musicians and again, I wanted to be somebody's Mike Campbell from Tom Petty, but right. I never got my Tom Petty, mm. you know. And um, but I, I still, I still say that it's, uh, uh, you know. But I, but I still won the lottery, 
as a, as a punk kid from Virginia and Florida, I won the, I hit the lottery. Big time. I, you know, I'm grateful. What's that? Bingo. Big time. Bingo. Big time. You know? so, so how do you go from... We all won the lottery, basically. <laughs> we Basically. Did, how do you go from all of that and now you shoot all these amazing artists and these different people with your photography and the video stuff you do? Like, where was the... I'm putting the guitar down for a while to go over to this career. Yeah, that was uh, sort of, as I mentioned before, doing that, that uh, um, well... I guess I've always been visual, but I just didn't know it. You know, when I mentioned uh, doing um, Baywatch mm -hmm. and Max Headroom, we would sit in the, you know, um, in the room and, uh, you know, in the studio and they would, you know, roll tape back in the day and you'd watch the scene, you know, and I wasn't composing the picture. I was playing what sort of Corey wanted me to play on, you know, for like, say, Baywatch. But I, I realized... The beauty of if somebody just walked it like Bruce knows this extensively, like the beauty with somebody just walked into a room and all you had to do was maybe hit some light harmonics and then just shimmer the neck like Bill Frizzell or something. And when you I realized the power of something so minimal to something so uh, visual w without even dialogue at that point and realize how powerful those images and sound when it when it aligns how extraordinarily powerful it is and i've got actually you know i got a gush here for a second so you know when when you guys first asked me to to be on the show um i you know i did a little bit of research you know and like okay what am i stepping into here because you know i'm not you know i'm, I'm I, I i've removed myself from guitar quite a bit you yeah. know and when i when i saw Bruce's name, I was like, I, I know that name, I know that name. And I realized years ago, this great movie that Clint Eastwood had directed and Hilary Slank starred in called Million Dollar Babies. And I realized, it was one of my favorite movies. And I, and I connected, wait a minute, wait. When I watched that movie, there was this incredibly evocative music, guitar music that was coming out of coming out of the, the speakers and, and connecting again back to that, that imagery and powerful minimalism of some of those scenes and not a lot of dialogue at some points, but the music was extremely powerful and carrying the emotions through the imagery. And when the movie got done, waiting for credits, going home, Googling, Million Dollar Baby Guitarist, soundtrack, and Bruce's name came up. And I was like, then did research. Okay, Bruce, it was like, Bruce, great guitar, guitar, jazz guitarist, Bruce, you know, Foreman. And I was like, wait a minute, the plane I heard was this just visceral, raw, um, organic, um, just live in the moment and very, uh, not, I don't want to say totally improv, but it sounded, it wasn't like, cut to a click, you know, it was just, it was just free form. And I was like, is that the same guy? Cause I didn't really, I don't remember jazz going on in that track, you know? And then, but, but I went back and listened to the music. It was like, no, there's a lot of sophistication going on. And then it was like, now I'm sitting here with him right here. He's, he's right here on the couch. And it's amazing when you hear, I guess the bigger point here is I don't play jazz. I can't play jazz. I, I, I don't have the range of colors in my hearing 
to hear the extensions and the harmonic complexity of jazz. But what I do have, probably more to any depth of anything in anything in this life, is feeling the, the raw emotion that art, and in this case Bruce's art of his, through his music, wow. conveys to me. And he plays with such sophistication in, sorry, he plays with such, you can feel like the, what we used to call dirt devils, like which is these like dry tornadoes that go across the Oklahoma and you know the Midwest, and there's the Dust Bowl. You know you hear that in that soundtrack, and then when you really listen to it, and you think, oh, okay, that's pretty simple, just a couple simple notes and a little bit of a couple harmonies. But then you really listen to it, and then you hear the evolution of those melodies, and you realize the sophistication and the harmonic and voice leading that go into it and it's like, okay, there's a whole nother level of depth going on and yet it is, it is as real and as blood um, bleeding with emotion that anybody, my wife who's not a musician, would cry to hear, hearing that music because of the depth of emotion that comes out of it. Wow, know? wow. Can I can did I just you, can I just him? can I just say that no, that's, that's like John. like I mean no really it's like like the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life, <laughs> and um and and frankly regardless of the of the situation, regardless whether I'm playing Giant Steps or whether I'm playing with Clint Eastwood or whether I'm whatever, that's what I'm going for, is for the emotional content. It's always been that way. I mean, you know, when you said you like me because you heard me trying to burn, you know, you were relating to a guy that was like basically chewing on a live wire, you know, that's plugged, <laughs> yeah. still plugged into the wall. Yeah, that's that's kind of who I am. You know, I mean, if I'm going crazy, I'm going crazy. If I'm trying to put the world to bed, I'm trying to put the world to bed. I mean, there's like a an Orpheus complex to it, you know, of create... Uh, make people cry, make people laugh, make people think, make people love, you know.